0: Thanks Tim for that. One little footnote which is not part of the sermon but just for your own interest. You might have noticed that word sila in brackets in the psalm. It occurs in a number of psalms. No one is too sure what it means. It's probably some form of instruction to the musicians to either go louder or faster or whatever. Although I did hear one suggestion. It might have been what David said when he broke a string on the harp and said, Oh sila! <laughs> and someone wrote it down. Um, anyway, that's not what we're here to focus on. We're going to explore the uh, continuing our exploration of the uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and uh, we've been doing so, as I said, through the lens of God's mission plan, which is revealed. Our understanding of God's character and purposes is by viewing God in action, and right from the first verse of the Bible, we see God in action. God. Sending and entering into the messiness of the, um, the darkness of the world. I've summarised that mission plan through this phrase shalom, sometimes known as peace, but it is uh, it is peace in so much more than that. Shalom in the sanctuary of God, and there have been a few people asking about the uh, the definitions that I showed of that last week, and I intend, hopefully. Uh, to upload a printout of those PowerPoints from last week onto our webpage so that they are available for others to view and reflect. But we can see that God's purposes are continued through his uh, ultimate act of creation, the creation of humanity, male and female, created in the image and likeness of God. And the image of God meaning that we have uh, a task that we are to continue in God's authority through a commission and likeness is the capacity that humanity has been given to enable them to do that. And uh, this week as we get into the second creation narrative, we see that there is something seriously awry, something is missing. So just a bit of a backdrop, we have two creation accounts that sit side by side in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, the creation account talks about what we might describe as the architecture of creation, about the framework, the the firmaments, the the major elements, the separation of the uh, the heavens from the earth, of the the sky from the waters and the sea and the land that emerges. And then God populates those elements by putting stars and uh, living creatures and and, uh, vegetation. The language in Genesis 1 is not scientific language, not intended to be. It's actually equivalent to what we would describe as dreamtime language. It's a form of legend pointing us to deeper truths that can't be expressed through bland statements. So it's wrong to try and press that for information uh, about how creation was made. It's talking about why it was made, what is going on, rather than trying to give a, a, an account in, um, in a modernist sense. And other cultures get that far more easily than those of us who come from a modernist background. So alongside that, that account in Genesis 1, where the, uh, as I said, the jewel of creation is the creation of humanity, male and female, in the image and likeness of God. We then have a second creation account that is set in the context of a garden. It's a very familiar image in the uh, ancient Near Eastern world. Most of the, uh, the monarchs, the, the kings and the royal family would have a garden in close proximity to the, uh, the residence. And it's what we know here. So in South Australia, in the, governments, the governor's house is surrounded by a garden, a walled garden. Um, and the queen is surrounded by gardens and forests and things in uh, her residences her palaces as well. So that's something of the imagery that places the context for the second creation narrative that we have here. And it's designed to be a place of uh, flourishing and of life... Of, uh, of life that comes. There are two trees placed in the garden. One is the tree of life and uh, that is life giving at the centre of the garden and we've been uh, adopting and are working with that around as an image for St Matthew's as a church, as uh, looking to grow in the tree of life and to enter into that, uh, the qualities that come with that. The second tree is a knowledge of good and evil where it conveys a sense of an accountability. Humanity has been given the capacity to make decisions and choices, being informed by a sense of what is right and what is wrong. We're not given the scope to create what is right and wrong, but we made choices informed by what is right and what is wrong. And we'll reflect more on that next week as we look at a diagnosis of the human condition in that light. But for now, I want to focus on the job that has been uh, given to humanity. And it is summarised in verse 15 in Genesis 2, in the second creation account. The Lord God took the man, and at this stage, it's a very indefined being. It's an earth creature, that's what the word Adam actually means, and uh, put him in the Garden of Eden. And the two verbs that are given, to cultivate it and to take care of it. And we focused on that last week and we recognised that to cultivate is both physically plant seeds and have crops and to produce uh, the fruitfulness that comes from that and the harvesting, but the broader sense of culture making. We create community and neighbourhoods and households and all that goes with that is part of this culture-making that we have a capacity to do. So this is the task. Adam has been placed there. God steps back and says, did he say it's all good? No. Let me do a sidetrack for a moment. I'm reading a book at the moment. Actually, I started to read it and to hear it halfway across the Hay Plains as I was driving back from Sydney and a number of you praying that I would stay awake. I did, thank you. Uh, the book is about the, uh, the best chocolate shop in Paris. Uh, actually quite a fun book anyway. The purpose of my mentioning it is that there is this figure of a great master uh, chef who specialises in making chocolate. And you know how the the uh, the French chefs are very much larger than life figures. You know, you know, the whole Cordon um, Bleu experience, and this chef, as he uh, is training others up in the art of creating the most perfect chocolate, uh, would taste something, and if it's not exactly right, you can imagine, lord you know, c'est horrible! It's dreadful! Throw it all out! It is not good." God has that reaction when he looks at the creation of the man. Now, before we get into, no, actually, I'll keep that to later. So, at this stage, God looks at creation, unlike Genesis 1, where in each day of creation, God looked, stepped back at it at the end of each day and said, it is good. Yep. Yeah. And he gets to the end of day six in the creation of humanity and he steps back and he says, it is good. Very good. Yep. So this is a part of the narrative. We read the two narratives side by side. When God says it is good, it means it's both beautiful, the word means beautiful, but it also means good in the sense of fit for purpose. This is what is needed. This is right. The the elements are in place for this project to grow and to flourish. So when God looks at the creation of this earth creature, of this man, and says it is not good, he's saying, this is not fit for purpose. Something is seriously missing here. <laughs> and until we address this, it will not be fit for purpose, for the task that has come. So this statement, it is not good for man to be alone, is not just a question about God thinking, oh, you need some company. You know, the poor thing, he's isolated out there. Uh, You know, I know the dog's good company, but he needs something a bit more than a dog to be company. It's not going into that. It's actually a much deeper and more profound sense. Something is missing in creation at this point, and it needs to be addressed. There is a lacking, a gap in the experience of this part of creation So God continues, recognising that this lack, this gap, says, I will make him a helper as his counterpart. Now, this is a, a verse that's often quoted, and I want to say clearly this morning, it is often misunderstood and misquoted. I've heard it expressed as though the main task has been given to the males, the man of the species, and the, uh, the need, the help, the assistance comes from the sideline, from the support network. That is not what this passage is saying. When I teach different passages and I te- do some classes in biblical interpretation, I talk about a scale of one to five. One is, there's no way that interpretation is a fair interpretation. <laughs> five is, we can be confident that we're on the right track. This is actually in the right place for interpretation. You know, three is well, there's a poss- few different possibilities. It could be this, it could be that. Four is it's probably this, but there's some doubt. This passage and the account that I'm giving you, which is not just mine, it's actually well established, it's a five. It's actually quite clear in this passage as, as well. But first of all, a bit of a confession about a representative of the male of the species. Now, I'm not the only representative here. Uh, Fiona read the front page of the bulletin, the, uh, the welcome sheet, and she said, Aha! Yes! At one particular point, I confess that as a male of the species, I have two characteristics that I know I'm not alone with. The first is my reluctance to use instructions. (laughs) You know, I get something out there, an Ikea pack, and I think, yeah, yeah, it's all obvious, it's all in pictures, I'll, you know, I'll I'll work it out. And sure enough, later in the exercise I discovered that actually there was a left and a right that I got mixed up and I had to take the whole thing apart again and perhaps I should have read the instructions to start with. The second confession that I have here is that I am reluctant when I go into a shop to ask for assistance. I don't know what it is. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure that I can spend 10 minutes searching something out before I reluctantly think, perhaps I should have asked the person who knows about the place and where to find it in the first place. Am I alone in that? Is it just me? Yeah. Uh, it does seem to be a bit of a characteristic that males do have a sense that we know best, we don't need to be told anything, um, we all, you know, we've got it all sorted, and on the other hand, we don't need help. You know, we, we like to be self-sufficient, we like to be independent. You know, I like to have a tool for every possible job in my garage. Rob can testify to that, he's already seen some of the collection. doesn't always work that way as it goes. So, my paraphrase for what the problem here is God is saying to this earth creature, this man that's still to be fully formed, it is not good to go it alone. You're not designed to go it alone. In fact, you're designed to be working in a relationship that is missing at the moment. And so the search goes to find a helper. Now, when people say, well, the word helper means that someone has the main task and someone else is the assistant, that is absolutely not the case in this passage. And let me show you why we can be so confident about it. Because the word that is used, Isa, is used most often in the Old Testament of God. God is the helper of Israel and you'll be a pretty gain interpreter to suggest that the main task was Israel and God was just there as an assistance on the side. God is the boss. God is in no way inferior or subordinate or in in an ancillary role when God has been described. We had it in the passage in Psalm 54. By the way, when we have a psalm in the Bible readings, the psalm is a response to the first Bible reading. That's something to note. So we read in Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side as my helper. Psalm 41, sorry, Isaiah 41, I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you. Each of these in a situation of crisis that only God can step into. The wonderful Psalm 121 That is so popular. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And it's picked up again in Hebrews 13. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can anyone do to me? There is nothing in that word helper that implies subordination or inferiority or a secondary role. But wait, there is more. <laughs> because the partner, I'll just as a little aside, we can um, pick up the name Ebenezer. It's an old old name, but actually this, that's where the word Ezer is found as well. The, it's a Hebrew word. Ebenezer means thus far, the Lord has helped us. That popped up on my Google search and I thought it was rather nice. So I've popped it in there as well. So, as we come to... Um, Let's see if I can mute. No, I can't. Um, Back to the helper. The helper needs to be a corresponding partner. The word that's used here um, is someone who is my equal. Someone who reflects me is my counterpart, as an equal. Um, Almost a corresponding image. The other flip side, if you like, in that sense. So the search that goes on is amongst the rest of the animal world. Is this someone who corresponds to you? And all the different uh, possibilities are brought forward and, and uh, the man names them, but it says none of them is my corresponding partner. None of them is my equal in that space. Until the creation of the woman. This is a special act of creation Out of man the woman is created. And he says, yes, this is the one who is corresponding to me. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, human like me. Now the same point, of course, was made in the first account in Genesis 1. Male and female, he made them. The seventh account is describing that as a process that now is culminated in the creation of the woman. And as the passage continues then, it has a picture of harmony and of trust that goes. The man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Though this relationship as described is not just a a description that is for marriage or for holy matrony as we understand it in the Judeo-Christian terms. This is actually talking about society as a whole, and the relationships between men and women in terms of our human society, we need each other. So a way in which we can summarise that, um, Paul uses a phrase in the New Testament where he reflects on creation, he's reflected on how a woman was taken from man and how man is now born of woman. Have you ever read Paul, the letters of Paul? Got through a chapter and said to yourself, it "Sounds really profound." But I'm really not quite sure what Paul was saying, what his point is. I mean, I'm a Pauline scholar, but I get those passages, <laughs> you know. And at times, it's, you can almost picture it because Paul was probably dictating this in a group context when he was writing stuff, and you can almost sense him of his onlookers saying, um, "Paul." I think you've lost everyone. What's your point? When Paul gets to that stage, he uses a little word called "plend," where he says, this is my point. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. This is what you ought to take away from it. At the end of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's talked about how women have their headdress, or their hair, and how men have their hair and how they present in public, and how women have, their, have authority in their own right, He then comes and says, this is my point. And it says it for the word here, it's translated, nevertheless. This is my point, Paul says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. And he goes on, for as woman came from man, Genesis 2, so also man is born of woman. Every one of us is born. Born of woman, but everything comes from God. This truth is so important in the present time. In our present world, in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods across Adelaide, there is a dreadful scar and darkness that is experienced. Those who have power over others, whether it's physical strength or whether it's financial power or whether it's emotional manipulation, all too often, about 90% of the time, it's males over females. We know it isn't just that, we know that males over other males is awful. We also know that there are some females who also can perpetrate that sort of violence and abuse. But that is a sad reality in our community. And it has been called out rightly. And we need to hear those voices. It's been called out in Parliament. It's called out in workplaces. It's pulled out in schools. It's called out in other places as well. We need to name that that is not how God intended those relationships to work. Sadly, it is also true of the church. Indeed, in some ways, it's even worse in the church because when you add spiritual power into that space, the claim that God has given certain people the right to dominate, then we recognise just how damaging and dangerous, that is. The Anglican Church of Australia was the first denomination of its kind to hear some of those voices emerging and said, we need to have a commissioner study to hear more about this and learn from it. The National Church Life Survey did it for the Anglican Church and the report has been released that says that a misunderstanding of the dynamics of men and women in the church has led and does lead to not just um, a misuse of authority, but even to abuse as well. This is a problem we need to own, and it starts with our own church communities, how we recognise and respect how God has created us. For we are created to be, as I would put it here, whoops, an independence and a fellowship of equals. It's there in Genesis 2. Now I know there are other passages that we need to explore and at another time I'm happy to do so. But at this stage I want to be clear about Genesis 2, is highlighting we are created for one another. We are at our best when we're working together and cooperatively, whatever our differences. And certainly when it comes to male and female, we are called to have a fellowship a partnership of equals. Where I hear of those relationships, of friendships and of marriages, the flowers in church this morning are from Peter Goddard's funeral on Friday. and Margaret got up and spoke about being with Peter in his final hours as well. 72 years they were married. Actually, no, I'm sorry. 67 years they were married. My parents were 72 years. <laughs> It's on my mother's headstone. I was able to sit there and reflect on it. Now, of course, they all have our moments in that space, have different seasons, but there is something precious about that that is also true as a mirror for society and as a church as a whole. If the world is to see what this ability to gather people with differences and male and female together, working in respect and in trust, they should be able to see it in the church more than anywhere else. So, brothers and sisters, there is work to be done. But if I can say to my brothers, it is not good for us to go it alone. Let us hear God and respond in how we relate and respect and model that, especially for the next generations to come. Ámên.